Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law based at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, Manager of the Centre. I'm Sarah Joseph, Director of the Centre. And we're joined today by a special guest, uh, Professor Douglas Guilfoyle, a member of the Monash Law Faculty and international law expert. Douglas, welcome. Thanks for having me. So recently, the International Criminal Court um, announced, or at least in recent times, that it will investigate war crimes committed in Afghanistan, including by US soldiers, potentially. And it is also investigating potential crimes committed by Israeli forces in Israel-Palestine. And for those reasons, uh, plus a long-held personal antipathy towards the ICC, Donald Trump's National Security Advisor, John Bolton, gave a speech last week tearing into the court. And so today, I'm going to read the most interesting parts of the speech, and Sarah and Douglas are going to bring their best international law hot takes. Um, Before I do, there have been a lot of takes on this speech since it came out, um, and this one in an article with Vanity Fair was my favourite. It referred to John Bolton as a, quote, bloodthirsty maniac who's been hungering to turn Tehran into a glass parking lot for over a decade. So here we go. John Bolton's speech to the Federalist Society... 10 September 2018. After a long introduction, uh, Bolton will go on to give five reasons why the ICC is terrible, and I'm going to pretty much skip over that intro, but here are just a few quotes I'd like to highlight before I do. He starts by saying, after uh, after years of effort by self-styled global governance advocates, the ICC, a supranational tribunal that could supersede national sovereignties and directly prosecute individuals for alleged war crimes was agreed to in 1998. Okay, so first off, he's no Obama. Uh, Not a really snappy beginning, is it? Um, I also want to ask, are you... uh, Do you two come under the rubric of self-styled global governance advocates? Yes. I I would think so, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, guilty as charged. (laughs) We have the infidels in the room. But I think the the key word in in this paragraph, in what he says, is the word agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it was agreed. It wasn't yeah. forced after, upon After everyone. years of effort. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, you know, how I mean, appalling I'm... to think something through, <laughs> negotiate it for a long time, and then come to agreement, wait a minute, amongst sovereigns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, um, it's actually, this kind of comes up again and again in this speech where he's making a forceful argument against the ICC, but he's not like Donald Trump in that he does acknowledge basic facts, uh, such as the fact that it was actually a bunch of governments who came together and agreed mm. to do it. You kind mm, of see terrible. this as you go, <laughs> yeah, shocking. Um, uh, then the next thing he says is the largely unspoken but always central aim of its most vigorous supporters was to constrain the United States. The objective was not limited to targeting individual U.S. service members, but rather America's senior political leadership and its relentless determination to keep our country secure. Okay, so he's led with the most Trumpian tactic of all, which is paint the world's most powerful nation as the victim. And after 20 years, they finally opened they finally opened a prosecution. Yeah. That's a long time coming, that plan. Well, and a prosecution which might implicate the U.S., Right. Yeah, you know, no one, no arrest warrants have been issued, no case theory has been put forward. We don't know. We just know that the prosecutor is going to look at the situation in Afghanistan, which could implicate, uh, you know, the Taliban, the Afghan authorities, the U.S., 
um, the Brits, the Canadians, Australians, like, you know, lots of people have been active in Afghanistan, and yes. some of these people have done dubious stuff. Um, so, within that, he's making a point, though, that, that the, the, the ICC was actually set up to target the United States. Is that true? No. No. <laughs> Well, and, and what's, so what, what, yeah, go on. Well, a really interesting thing, actually, is that a number of states um, that haven't ratified yet, such as, say, you know, Indonesia, there's an attitude amongst a lot of governments in Southeast Asia which take the view that actually it was really unfair for the United States to be so prominent in the negotiation of the Rome Statute and then not to sign up to it, because effectively the statute was, much of the content of the statute was dictated around US concerns. Then having met all of the US's objections, it goes, actually, no, we're not going to sign up. So a lot of governments actually look at the statute and go, well, silently, this has been shaped around a kind of US-shaped hole, and then they don't even join? Like, why should the rest of us join some, a game that has been rigged by the United States, which it's then walked away from? Now, I think that's an extreme characterization of the negotiations, but to claim that this is, you know, a club of states ganging up on the US is ridiculous. Well, there's, well the US also has form on that. I mean, it does that. With, it's done that with human rights. It's done that with human rights treaties as well. Oh, and the law of the sea. Like, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. So it is a serial <clears throat> non-ratifier. <laughs> and it had, uh, there, was a, there was a domestic implication here, was, which is that uh, the change of US government in two, at the end of 2000... Well, and it also didn't help that, you know, a central feature of the International Criminal Court uh, is an independent prosecutor. And if we think back to 1998, the US was having some troubles with, you know, independent prosecutors, uh, like the Kenneth Starr um, investigation <laughs> in the, the Clinton era. And the idea of a prosecutor going rogue loomed pretty big in the US imagination at that time. <laughs> and funnily enough, it does now. Um, so in... Uh, his next quote that I want to pull out, which I think is interesting, that goes to uh, what the US did when the Bush administration came in. OK, so they didn't end up ratifying the Rome Protocol. And then he says, in 2002, Congress passed the American Service Members Protection Act, which some have branded the Hague Invasion Act. Uh, this law, which enjoyed broad bipartisan support, no uh, surprise there, authorises the president to use all means necessary and appropriate, including force, to shield our service members and the armed forces from prosecution. Uh, my question, just as an aside, is uh, what would they do if, <laughs> if somehow a US uh, armed forces personnel found themselves in The Hague? Well, it seems like they're itching to go to war with the Netherlands. <laughs> You couldn't put it past this administration. <laughs> who, knows, who knows what they'd do? I mean, actually, I think, you know, the, the idea that um, uh, the US is going to invade a, a NATO ally, principally known for tulips, um, is, I think it always was, fanciful. I think the more interesting aspects of the act are just how widely it allegedly prohibits any form of US um, support for or cooperation with the court, and in fact, um, one of the sections prohibited, uh, as it was originally passed, any form of military cooperation with any ICC member state. Now, obviously, once you get to 123 member states and pretty much all of NATO, that's and Australia, that's going to that's going to create some problems. So that section actually had to be repealed in 2008. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, um, the president has to kind of notify various congressional committees and issue like a little waiver under various sections to do anything that might. Um, support the court. So, you know, it, it's put a lot of red tape around the issue. And in principle, uh, it does put up some fairly large barriers to the US doing anything to cooperate with the court.
So he finishes off his introduction um, by channeling Joe Pesci from Goodfellas with this gem, which I just have to read out. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC. We will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. And then, I, I'm, I don't want you to comment on that. I just needed to read that out because it's utterly magnificent. Do, do, do you feel better? Yeah. <laughs> I feel purged. I wonder, I wonder if John Bolton feels better after saying oh, that. I think he loved it. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and then he goes on to say, the US bases this policy on five principal concerns about the court. So the rest of it is basically John Bolton's critique of the ICC. And he starts off with, uh, the first um, threat from the ICC is to sovereignty. He says, the prosecutor in The Hague claims essentially unfettered discretion to investigate, charge and prosecute individuals regardless of whether their countries have acceded to the Rome Statute. And then he goes on and he actually says, even all of you sitting in this, in this room today are purportedly subject to the court's prosecution. So what's... Could be the same for us sitting here right now. Yeah, right. Yep. they could be outside the door. <laughs> So um, what's the truth? Who can and cannot be charged by the ICC? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that <laughs> sense. It's one of those moments when, as, uh, as a lecturer, you go, well, I could do a whole tutorial on that sentence. <laughs> um, but essentially, it goes to, to my mind questions of you know, jurisdiction, mm. uh, immunities, um, and also prosecutorial discretion. Because when, when you actually look at the core of it, it's saying, the prosecutor has an unfettered discretion to investigate, charge, and prosecute, to which the answer is no, no, and no. Right, so if you, if you actually... So it's wrong then. He, I, I would say he's hit every wrong branch on the way down, having fallen out of the correctness tree. Um, but if we, if we think about... So, you know, generally the prosecutor, like there, you always say there are several triggers for um, the prosecutor being able to act. The Security Council can refer a case to him. Well, that's not unfettered. The Security Council has given it to him. Uh, and the US could veto that. Exactly. And a member state can say please come and investigate something. Well, then, you know, it's the member state doing it. So he, the prosecutor, he or she, does have a power to launch investigations of his own motion, proprio motu, but um, there are a series of layers to that. So first, he has to, to open an investigation, he has to go to the pretrial chamber of the International Criminal Court and present evidence that shows there's a reasonable basis to proceed. So step one, can't investigate without evidence and without a court order. Step two, to issue arrest warrants, he's got to satisfy the pretrial chamber that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the suspect has um, committed a crime within the jurisdiction of the court. And then to confirm the charges and launch a case, he's got to go to the highest standard of substantial grounds to get charges confirmed and get a case moving in pretrial chamber. Then before the trial chamber, obviously, he's got to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt. So you have these, ex these sort of serially higher hurdles of reasonable basis, reasonable grounds and substantial grounds is subject, or presently she is subject, to supervision by the pretrial chamber at each stage. And more than what's built into the statute, there's been a series of running battles between the pretrial chamber and the prosecutor over the scope of the prosecutor's independence, where the trial chambers are, you know, in effect, trying to claw back more and more control over cases from the office of the prosecutor. Uh, and that's before we get to jurisdiction. Mm. Um, and, and I presume this yep. jurisdiction is based on Afghanistan must be a party. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, it's territorial jurisdiction. So let me ask that more clearly, so stepping right back, mm. just give us a brief overview of, of all the cases in which 
you know, he, which well, the prosecutor can well, launch an investigation. Well, in terms of jurisdiction, yeah. there's three bases. One is the Security Council can confer jurisdiction. Now, that didn't happen here, and the US can veto such things. And Sounds like it's now intending to veto all, you know, maybe in the future one thing he's threatening is that it will always veto. So, and to be clear, the Security Council could authorise an investigation in any country regardless of whether they've signed up to the Rome Statute. Yes, yes. And then the other two bases are territorial, which is what is happening here. So this is about things that have happened on the territory of Afghanistan. And the other one is nationality. Um, so, uh, you know, therefore, if America was a party, then it would apply to Americans anywhere in the world. So it applies to Australians anywhere in the world, Afghanis anywhere in the world. Yep. What's strange about this one is <laughs> the most normal basis for the exercise of jurisdiction, at least at the domestic level, is in fact territorial. Normally, if you commit a crime on the territory of a country, it will exercise criminal jurisdiction over mm. you, regardless of what your nationality is. Mm. That's what's happening in this instance. It's actually the most normal basis. Admittedly, you don't normally end up in an international court, but international courts are, of course, a lot rarer than domestic courts. Would you agree, Professor Guilfoyle? Well, <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, the, the point basically here is if Afghanistan as a sovereign state has territorial jurisdiction over things that happen on its soil, it can delegate that jurisdiction to any court or tribunal it wants as an aspect of its sovereignty. And the thing is, you know, if an American service per person commits a crime on foreign soil, first principles, they are subject to that sovereign's jurisdiction, unless an exception applies or there's a treaty in place, which is, you know, why you often have uh, disputes, for example, about... Um, the conduct of American service personnel, for example, say in Japan. There's a status of forces agreement that regulates when Japanese courts can take jurisdiction and when US courts can take jurisdiction. But unless you have a treaty like that in place, jurisdiction follows the soil, essentially. The only mm. other question then becomes, under what circumstances could an international crime be an act of state that's covered by the state immunity doctrine? And that's pretty controversial stuff, but broadly you can accept that, you know, wars are things states do. So foot soldiers engaging in a war will be covered in principle by state immunity. But there are lots of treaty-based exceptions already without the International Criminal Court to state immunity. For example, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. That's not all war crimes. There's certainly a core group of war crimes that the US and every other civilised state in the world agrees are subject to jurisdiction, for which there's no immunity. Hmm. Uh, now, his, other, his real problem with sovereignty here is that, well, the United States is not um, a party to the Rome Statute, but in this case, because they're on the soil of someone who is a party, being Afghanistan, they could be charged. And he says, as Americans, we fully understand the consent of the governed is a prerequisite to true legal legitimacy, and we reject such a flagrant violation of our national sovereignty. Thoughts? Well, he's wrong. I mean, for the reasons you've kind of gone to, into, like, effectively, they've gone into another country and they've committed yeah. a crime. And really, I mean, what you're saying, Douglas, is... It's also a bit is... different because he's talking about the consent of sovereignty. And, you know, America's not being dragged before the ICC. It's mm. potentially 
American soldiers, and as Doug has pointed out, Australian soldiers, Afghani soldiers, Taliban soldiers, Pakistan, you know, etc. Mm. Mm. So, um, well, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on these kind of issues in the 1800s in Schooner Exchange McFadden, where Chief Justice Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court effectively said, "If as a sovereign you go onto another sovereign's territory, you are immune from local jurisdiction to the extent that international law and the local sovereign allows." Like, you know, if you want your sovereignty respected, don't go into someone else's jurisdiction. The argument that U.S. sovereignty magically trumps everyone else's sovereignty... Trumps? Trumps. <laughs> Ha-ha. You see what I did there? But, um, After they've invaded but, but that, that country. But that's an argument that's an argument that takes us back to the 19th century and, you know, consular jurisdiction of empires. You know, if, as one sovereign, you go onto another sovereign's soil, you are amenable to that sovereign's jurisdiction unless otherwise agreed or unless you have an immunity under international law. Full stop. End of story. Okay. His second critique, uh, that the crimes are ambiguous. So he says, the definition of crimes, especially crimes of aggression, are vague and subject to a wide-ranging interpretation by the ICC. Had the ICC existed during the Second World War, America's enemies would no doubt be eager to find the US and its allies culpable for war crimes for the bombing campaigns over Germany and Japan. So uh, the main issue here is... uh, are the crimes that are covered by the Rome Statute too vague? Well, they're so appallingly vague and impossible to implement as domestic standards that they've been copy-pasted into Division 268 of the Australian (laughs) Criminal Code 1995, pretty much word for word. So obviously Australia, as, you know, a, a liberal democracy with a lot of values in common with the US has plainly thrown up its hands and said, there's nothing here we can do. I mean, it's... But we might have been forced to do that by the Dutch. Right, I think, yes. I think the, the problem here is clearly benevolence. So, war, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide are by now well known. Mm. Right? They were prosecuted by the Tribunal for Yugoslavia, the Tribunal for Rwanda. Uh, you know, we can extract things from the Genocide Convention, the Geneva Conventions. There's a lot of case law. The ICC statute breaks it down into the elements of crimes. And Australia is just one domestic jurisdiction, looked at all of that stuff and went, yeah, this is perfectly usable. And we can put it in our criminal code. We can use the ICC language. It's not particularly problematic. Now, obviously, obviously, when you're interpreting criminal law and you've got judges involved, you're going to have arguments at the edges about the interpretation of certain key concepts. Um, I mean, aggression is a separate issue. You know, aggression is more complex. Um, But the Rome Statute, so, okay, just doubling back a bit, you know, Bolton's really agitated that if we go onto someone else's soil, we could be subject to the crimes set out in the ICC. But that's the same as if it were, you know, murder, theft, whatever, a a national law offence. Aggression is really, really, really different. Mm. Um, So aggression was added to the Rome Statute on a purely opt-in basis. Not only do you have to be a member of the club that's the ICC, you have to voluntarily join a club that's going to be subject to the crime of aggression. And then Article 15 actually says in terms that there will never be jurisdiction over non-ICC parties' nationals and non-ICC parties' territory without a Security Council resolution. So the idea that the ICC could exercise jurisdiction over American aggression while it remains a non-party, even if America committed an act of aggression against an ICC state party, is fanciful. 
Um, There's also the charming the implication he's got in there that um, that it's impossible for the U.S. and its allies to to commit war crimes um, back in World War Two and even now. Yeah. That you know if you're well, fighting on the right side that you just do not commit war crimes, which mm. is which is patent nonsense. Unfortunately, the history of war includes a fairly general history of war crimes. Well, and also such wild American defence. Um, radicals as Robert McNamara, the Defence Secretary during the Vietnam War, and US Air Force Chief of Staff, you know, uh, Curtis LeMay, uh, who, you know, presided in part over the bombing of Japan, both went, yeah, like, you know, they're on record <laughs> as having said towards the end of their careers, yeah, had we lost, we would have been prosecuted as war criminals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, towards the end of his life, McNamara said, was there a rule that said you shouldn't bomb, shouldn't kill, shouldn't burn to death a hundred thousand civilians in one night? And that clearly troubled his conscience. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are not. <laughs> it bothered me. <laughs> uh, there's a. Before we move on, I do. There, he he's got this series of questions. I think this would just make a nice lightning round of yes or no's on the crime of aggression. Was the mission of U.S. Navy SEALs that killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan a crime of aggression? No. Potentially, yes. Foreign soil. Uh, what about the US and coalition strikes in Syria to protect innocent children from chemical weapons? I'd say yes. I'd say yes. How about US military exercises with allies and partners around the world? No. No. Because they're conducted with consent <laughs> on someone's soil. Or Israel's actions to defend itself on countless occasions? Well, it depends which countless occasion you're talking about, but uh, you know, we, <laughs> if it's an act in self-defense, it's not aggression. You may then get into the territory of, you know, war crimes, but per se, if you're responding to an armed attack, that's not aggression. All right. Uh, third reason. Um, oh, actually, he does say, before we go on sovereignty, um, uh, the next obvious step is to claim complete universal jurisdiction, the ability to prosecute anyone, anywhere, for vague crimes identified by the Hague's bureaucrats. Is this on the agenda? Um, no. Not that I'm aware of. Mm. Potentially, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, depends on what you mean by potentially, but it seems unlikely. Yeah. Okay. It depends on whose agenda you're talking about. Yeah. And I mean, whether the, it's the, clo the closest. The Nobody with any power. The closest the courts come is in respect of the Rohingya, saying that because the crime of forced deportation began in Myanmar, a non-state party, and was completed in the territory of Bangladesh, a state party, they will assert jurisdiction over the whole offence. That's a pre-trial chamber decision that's subject to appeal. It's potentially a bit controversial, but, you know, that's still a long way short of universal jurisdiction. Yeah. Okay, his third reason uh, is that uh, the ICC is not very good. So he says, since its 2002 inception, the court has spent over $1.5 billion while attaining only eight convictions. Uh, he calls that a dismal record. Thoughts? I'd say he's actually being kind of generous. I'd say that the court's record is actually worse than that. They've got eight convictions, one overturned on appeal, one arising from a guilty plea, so a whole lot of work was, like, went into that, and four relating to the admin administration of justice rather than substantive crimes, um, you know, for which staggering sentences of up to three years were imposed. That relates to the administration of justice. And uh, I think I think later on uh, in our next segment, Douglas, you might come to uh, um, detailing a few of those failures. Um, there is one other thing he says uh, just on the issue of, of who should be dealing with justice. Uh, the idea that faraway bureaucrats and rogue judges would strike fear into the hearts of the likes of Saddam Hussein, Hitler, Stalin and Gaddafi is preposterous, even cruel. 
Time and again, history has proven that the only deterrent to evil and atrocity is what Franklin Roosevelt once called the righteous might of the United States and its allies. Um, well, I'd agree with you up to a point. I mean, President Bashir of the Sudan's been wanted by the ICC for 15 years, and, uh, okay, he's having trouble travelling outside of Africa, but so as long as he can make it onto a plane faster than a court injunction can be slapped <laughs> on his pilot, he doesn't seem to have an awful lot to fear. Um, so, yeah, I don't... There, there has been some empirical work that suggests that um, rebel groups who aim to form government one day, and that's a credible prospect, take into account to some extent the possibility they might be prosecuted for war crimes. Uh, but claiming that the ICC has a massive deterrent effect, I think, is by its nature difficult to prove and looks pretty shaky on the facts. Okay, so I guess we'll give them a tick on that one. I'm not really uh, sure. I'm, I'm not really sure Just about this issue of the righteous might. Well, I know, I know. That's isn't it beautiful. I mean, that could that could keep us occupied for the rest. Yeah, of the I didn't day, mean to so. give him. A, I didn't mean to give him a tick on the righteous might. I meant a tick on his claim that the ICC is not very effective. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that is a that's a uh, yeah that's a podcast all on itself. Mm. Um, so fourth, uh, so the International uh, Criminal Court is superfluous, and he's uh, so in, and this is in particularly in context of the U.S. So U.S. service members in the field must operate fully in accordance with the law of armed conflict. When violations of law do occur, the United States takes appropriate and swift actions to hold our perpetrators accountable. Well, I've just got one word on that, and that's torture. Yeah, yeah. They um, got all the torturers, didn't they, out of the CIA? Well... Got them and promoted them. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, well, promoted them, yeah, to some, some pretty prominent pretty pro prominent positions. But mm. the, the US has openly um, not, um, not prosecuted torturers. Mm. Uh, Obama has not. Yep. Uh, Trump has, well, has applauded them and wants more of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I mean... It, you know, that's just patently false. I mean, uh, it's made a policy decision. It is not going to prosecute the people who they have, you know, the Senate report openly says, it doesn't name them, but some of the names have now been bandied about, but mm. they, they have no intention of prosecuting those people. And depending on the actual context, we don't, <coughs> we, we've never seen the full report. I'm assuming some of those actions took place in Afghanistan. Mm. There were some lower level prosecutions arising out of um, Abu Ghraib, weren't there? Uh, yes, yes, but uh, I suppose I'm talking about the broader torture yeah, report, yeah, which emerged absolutely. much later on. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and one could say that the ultimate sentences which, which came about after Abu Ghraib were not particularly, were arguably no. not adequate. Well, and also, yeah, I mean, um, Obama's declaration that essentially there were going to be no, mm. proce no prosecutions arising mm. out of Guantanamo Bay was of itself a violation of the Torture Convention. Mm. Um, so that's the facts, that, that's sort of taking a factual look at the US's behaviour. There is a principle behind this um, that if a country that's part of the, the ICC takes action in any particular matter on, you know, at a domestic level, mm -hmm. then the ICC basically stays out of it. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yep. Um, so under Article 17 of the, the Rome Statute, the ICC's jurisdiction is meant to be complementary uh, to national jurisdictions, and the idea of complementarity is broadly there's a two-step test. The first step is to ask, is any state anywhere in the world, ICC party or not, active in respect of this case? So is there a prosecution happening anywhere? And if there is, that's meant to be an end to the inquiry. Big caveat on that. And then the other limb is, 
Um, oh, sorry, if there's not, then the ICC can proceed. If there is an active national prosecution, then the ICC proceeds to its unable or unwilling test. So despite seeming to do something, is the country in fact actually unable or unwilling genuinely to prosecute? Mm. Um, so the real problem with the application of that principle in practice uh, has been the same person, same conduct test. So you don't even have to ask the unable, unwilling question if no state is prosecuting the same conduct. So one of the interesting cases that's arisen in um, uh, the ICC is the uh, Simone Bagbo case, where she was already charged under national law with having um, breached state security and fomented armed insurrectionary movements and all these sort of national security offences and sentenced to 20 years, which is more than anyone at the ICC has got. But she hadn't precisely been charged with war crimes or crimes against humanity. So the ICC said, no, we can re-prosecute her. Mm. And so, you know, that is not a complementarity, as I think it was conceived in 98, would have resulted in the court having a pretty modest backstop jurisdiction. And there are reasonable concerns about whether the court uh, has been taking a more kind of aggressive, forward-leaning approach to how it's going to apply complementarity. All right. He has one final uh, criticism, and it's this, that the ICC has been sharply criticised and rejected by most of the world. Today, more than 70 nations representing two-thirds of the world's population and over 70% of the world's armed forces are not members of the ICC. Several African nations have recently withdrawn or threatened to withdraw their membership. What is the status of the global um, attitude towards the ICC? Well... I mean, he's really, I, I mean, I, I find it interesting that, you know, democracy is based on, you know, the percentage of armed forces in the world. <laughs> but, you know, two-thirds of the world's population, I presume he's right there, but, you know, if... if China, China, China counts for a lot. China counts yeah. for a lot. And is India a party? I mean, those two countries India alone, those two mm, countries yeah. alone, um, plus the United States, are, you know, mm. there are some massively populous countries that are not, um, that are not parties. Well, and also, if you're, if you're making this all contingent on... How many military personnel does it take to um, uh, to, to have some representative <laughs> state? I mean, the US, Russia, and China together have 10 million troops. Mm. North Korea, not a party, surprise, <laughs> has another six and a half million. Mm. Like, you know, you can come up with a big chunk of the world's military that's not inside the court. But on most kind of top tens of militaries that would actually be effective in combat would include... France, the UK, Japan and Germany, they're all in. So the mm -hmm. idea that you can't have an expeditionary international armed forces and be a member of the ICC is just ridiculous. Yep. And over 120 states yep. are parties to the ICC, which for an international treaty is pretty good. It's, That's reasonable. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. So um, he finally, he... he uh, oh, he, did we want to touch on Africa? Yeah, you know, go on. What's the latest? Hmm. I mean, uh, some African countries did try to withdraw. I know South Africa said it was, and then it was precluded from doing right. so by its own courts. Yeah, hmm. so, uh, which is of itself, sort of says the whole Africa story, um, and I'm very conscious that we're all very white and not very African in this room <laughs> at this moment, but uh, that it is more complex. Like, when I've spoken to African scholars about this, they've said, it's not as simple as saying this country is for or against the ICC. Often there'll be a division between the political class and the judiciary, as you see in South Africa, where the courts are very, seem to be very strong supporters of the ICC as part of an international rule of law. 
and pushed back and said, yeah, you can't just withdraw from the International Criminal Court under the South African Constitution without first passing an Act of Parliament. The other African states that have talked about leaving are um, Burundi, the Gambia and Kenya, and of those only Burundi has actually left. So the Gambia said we're going to leave and then the new government reversed course. Kenya's um, talked a lot about leaving, not surprising given <laughs> that their president and vice president were like indicted by the court, <laughs> but since have sort of rode back a bit and said we need to strengthen regional justice mechanisms. Mm. Um, so there was a 2017 vote by the AU sort of saying all African states should withdraw, but that vote itself was pretty contentious and a number of major players such as Nigeria and Senegal came out very strongly and said we don't think this is a good idea. AU being the African Union. African Union, yeah. Okay, so then uh, having given his reasons why it's bad, he says what he's going to do. Um, he, he And he gives four, uh, he has a four-point plan for destroying the enemies of freedom. Um, they're actually mostly pretty boring. Uh, one is to negotiate more bilateral agreements with countries who promise not to extradite U.S. soldiers. Uh, they already have a lot of those. Although the Trump administration has a pretty has a pretty interesting take on the word negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> um, another is work through the UN Security Council to thwart the investigations. Um, the third one is great. Um, what did it say here? It, it's um, we will take note of any countries that cooperate with the ICC investigations of the United States, and we will remember that cooperation when setting U.S. foreign assistance, military assistance, and intelligence sharing levels. So it's like I'm watching you. Uh, but the one that's most interesting is this one. Um, we will respond against the ICC and its personnel to the extent permitted by US law. We will ban its judges and prosecutors from entering the United States. We will sanction their funds in the US financial system and we will prosecute them in the US criminal system. Cro prosecute them for what? Over you, Doug. <laughs> well, I, I was... Uh, so, I'm not... I'm plainly not someone with a, a US law degree, nor have I served in a US administration, but I can Google those who have. <laughs> and so, you know, John Bellinger was hot on the blog saying that the only sort of case theory he could come up here uh, would be that you'd have to make some kind of declaration under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, branding the international court itself a threat to national security, mm. impose a sanctions regime on it and everyone associated with it, and then prosecute people for breaches of that. Regime, and he described this, um, you know, uh, branding of the ICC, its judges and prosecutors, as a national emergency, quote unquote, as being an extraordinary stretch. <laughs> I wonder actually if Bolton didn't go. I wonder if we could prosecute him. But bugger if I'd know how. I'll tell you what. I'll put it in the speech and, and see, what... see what the blogosphere tells me. <laughs> well, the other thing that the blogosphere has sort of pointed out is that Bolton himself might have made himself liable to prosecution before the International Criminal Court oh, that's for saying these things because. As I've pointed out, half the convictions the ICC's actually managed to enter have been for obstruction of justice. And, you know, obstructing cases where the cases fell over anyway, but they still managed to kind of go after people. And Article 70 sets out a series of offences against the administration of justice, including impeding or intimidating, you know, the court and its personnel in their work and retaliating against the court or its personnel for investigating. And interestingly, the Article 70 Administration of Justice uh, offences are not subject, or, or, or are not on their face, subject to the territorial and nationality limitations of the substantive crimes. <laughs> now, this is completely <laughs> untested, 
But, you know, John, John might find out that the court does have wide-ranging jurisdiction over anyone anywhere, but only in relation to it's administration of justice offences. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, the, our next job is to prepare a brief to the ICC. Yep, as to, as to why all of its other jurisdictional limitations should not be read into Article 70, which is plainly a freestanding, universal offence. So, uh, and was probably the reason why it was set up in the first place, to, hmm. to prosecute John Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to lure him. It's been to, tweeted to lure him, in the making. To, to lure him but now he's been lured out into the open yeah. into making these statements, yeah. So he finishes by saying, we will stand up for the US Constitution abroad, just as we do at home. And as always, in every decision we make, we will put the interests of the American people first. I feel like I should stand and applaud. Well done, John. Magnificent. Um, it's quite a speech. It's well worth a read. Uh, before we finish, any closing thoughts from the two of you? I think it's just another... I mean, it did make me think, when does, you know, America start to classify as some sort of rogue state <laughs> international law? Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, a series... Um, there's been a series of rejections of international law, the abandonment of the Iraq deal, the abandonment of the Paris deal, um, you know, the abandonment of the Human Rights Council. So, I mean, none of those of themselves... I mean, well, and then the aggressive enforcement which they're threatening over their own version of what they want to happen regarding Iran. Uh, and then you have um, all of the trade wars that have been unilaterally started. They might now abandon the WTO. And, um, yeah, I mean, at the very least, it, you know, it's a complete abandonment of, um, of multilateralism. Uh, to that, I should add, I mean, you know, move, moving the embassy in Israel. And, I mean, one that people are less aware of is there is a treaty about, um, about marketing of milk substitutes. Um, you know, it's, it's a treaty which stops, which is aimed at stopping companies from um, encouraging people against breastfeeding because you know they might you know they might mix up the solution with water which is not safe and so on and this has been around for years and when it was renegotiated this year America really threw its weight around to try and defang mm. this treaty yeah. and in a way you know bullied Ecuador into dropping its sponsorship of it and finally Russia ended up sponsoring yeah. it and it didn't you know <laughs> once again did not decided not to bully Russia on this issue and so there's you know there is a complete walking away from international law now many might say that America has always done that when it's against their interests and you know I think that that can be a that can be a fair critique but and maybe they're just being more open about it but it is I mean America now I mean if you were to negotiate a treaty with this administration I mean what's what's it worth mm -hmm. what is it worth yeah the other, the other thought I had looking over it was, um, you know, I, it's always sort of tempting to try and cast people you disagree with as just kind of unhinged. And some of the blog posts reacting to this, you know, did actually begin with things like, you know, unplugged and unhinged, Bolton's new <laughs> take on the ICC. But actually kind of trying to step back and think about it a bit more from a highly conservative American perspective, um, I think... For a certain type of US realist, it doesn't matter whether it's the international or the national level, there isn't really a belief in, this is a slightly controversial view, but the independence of the judiciary in the way we would understand it. If you think about the fight over nominations to the US Supreme Court, mm. if you think of how often the US Supreme Court votes basically straight down party lines, for you know a certain type of US power broker, uh, 
the judiciary is just the extension of politics by other means. So if they're doing this at the international level, there must be a political agenda. That's the only reason you'd do it. Hmm. So I think for a kind of extreme American international realism, but also for a certain type of American legal realism that's not alien to the US legal academy, this kind of thinking makes a certain sort of sense. Well, it's certainly the um, angle he's pushing, really, the fact that this is not just a fettering of US sovereignty, but that it's a deliberate targeting of the US um, for political I mean, reasons. I said that, Bolton was involved in the past... I mean, he was involved in the passage of the original law, the yeah. Hague Rescue Act. I mean, he was mm. in Bush's administration. So he's been spoiling for this fight for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, and any other fight you can yeah. offer him. Yeah. Um, as I said, he wants to bomb Tehran into a glass car park. So uh, that's all we've got on that. Before we finish, um, it's time for my favourite segment, um, Hero or Villain of the Week, uh, where we nominate one person who falls into that category of a human rights hero or villain. Uh, why don't we hand it over to our guest to be first? Okay, well, reflecting on the subject matter, I think my um, potentially quite controversial choice of a villain is uh, Moreno Ocampo, the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Like, Bolton does actually have a go at Ocampo uh, in terms in the course of his speech and says that, you know, he's had some very dubious business dealings since leaving the court and shared confidential court documents with Angelina Jolie. And all of this checks out. Like, the, the Spiegel investigation points out that he was minutes out of the job, well, hours or days, before he started taking you know, very large sums to advise uh, you know, Libyan oil magnates on how to keep out of trouble with the court. And when he was about to make a major announcement on Israel-Palestine, he forwarded all of the documents to Angelina Jolie and asked how he should explain to the world what was going on. Um, more than that, I think he set up uh, the present uh, prosecutor, Ben Suda, with a very difficult... Um, road a hoe, because as I explained before, there are a series of rising hurdles to various stages of the case, and his strategy was get cases on, get them on fast, and he didn't like committing resources to on-the-ground investigations. So what he did was, as soon as we've got enough evidence to clear that preliminary stage, launch an investigation. We've got just enough evidence for arrest warrants, get them out there. That is not how you would build a case in a domestic proceeding, right? So he was setting up a lot of cases that in retrospect, you'd say there had to be a pretty high chance some of these would fall over or you wouldn't reach beyond reasonable doubt at the final stage if you're just launching things as soon as you meet minimum evidentiary thresholds. So he created a lot of impact for the court. Um, and, you know, he probably did a very good job of sending signals for a long time to the US, we're not trying to pick a fight. And the US was, you know, quite happy to work with the court over things like Libya. Um, but his record is looking pretty tarnished, particularly after the Spiegel investigation. Great. Sarah? Uh, it's not really a, a, a hero or a villain. I suppose it, uh, it's a victim. And um, both of you would know that I always have a, a soft spot for artists, and in particular um, quite radical feral artists. And so I'm uh, talking about Peter Verzilov, who is a member a male member of uh, Pussy Riot. Uh, he's actually the husband of Nadia, who was one of the three um, one of the three, you know, famously arrested, what was it, four or five years ago, and one of the two who was ultimately in prison for, uh, for about a year. Uh, he's her husband, and he was one of the Pussy Riot members who invaded the pitch on the World Cup final and was arrested. And it appears he's now being flown out of Moscow into Berlin for medical treatment, appearing that he's been poisoned. Uh, mm. So, which 
is um, a development, I mean, you know, if that's come from the government, there's a lot of talk about Russia and poisoning for, you know, for many reasons, but that would be a, a change um, to be targeting dissidents in this way rather than sort of, you know, people who are much more involved in politics and, and, and um, that's not to applaud targeting people, uh, you know, ex-spies and so on, but this would be a very worrying escalation in tactics in controlling dissidents. And um, I gather, you know, he can't see, he can barely feel. I mean, mm. we'll, we, I don't know whether, you know, we'll see whether he's going to come out of this. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a concerning, I'd say, for all Russian dissidents, and um, hopefully he will pull through. Great. All right. Um, so my um, human rights villain is Pauline Hanson. Uh, I know it's easy. I know it's easy. But uh, last week in Queensland, a nine-year-old girl, um, Harper Nielsen, refused to stand for the national anthem at school on the grounds that it fails to recognise Australia's Indigenous population. It's actually sparked a really great conversation about our national anthem and what it means and doesn't mean. Um, but in response, Pauline Hanson didn't just think she'd done the wrong thing. She actually said... I'd give her a kick up the backside. The kid is headed down the wrong path and I blame the parents for it, for encouraging this. No, take her out of school. So for, um, for in hoping to incite violence on a nine-year-old girl, Pauline Hanson, welcome to uh, the Caston Centre's Hall of Villainy. Villainy. Infamy. I got two words mixed up. So that's all we've got time uh, for this week. Um, thanks to Theo Lira for editing this episode, and please be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes if you like us.